you have to turn from being product centric to customer centric, from focused on what you're doing to what your customers are experiencing. And so it is a matter of understanding that our customers are guests, that we are staging experiences, not just delivering services. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi listeners, Dina Heikel here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast with Simone Cicero. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Joe Pine, an internationally acclaimed author, speaker and management advisor. Joe has addressed the World Economic Forum in Davos, the original TED conference in California and the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. He is a lecturer in Columbia University's technology management program and has co-founded Strategic Horizons LLP to help businesses conceive and design new ways of adding value to their economic offerings. As a prophilic writer, Joe is most famous for his 1999 book, The Experience Economy, which was updated in 2011 and re-released in hardcover in 2020 with new ideas on competing for customer time, attention, and money. So, of course, Joe's work has, on the experience economy has been central to our work of platform design and thinking, and we wanted to explore with him what has changed, or as we would find out in the episode, has really not changed in the original ideas of his book. We talk about how experiences cannot be delivered, but have to be staged, and how it's important to also consider the experiences of the employees contributing to the development of the organizations and the providers who participate in co-creating the platform so that they can stage the best possible experiences. The experience economy, as we find out, is not a fad, but a profound transformation of our economies. That's why, like Joe points out in this episode, there is no real recovery of the economy without the recovery of experiences that people value. So peeking into the future, we see patterns of continued modularity of experiences, whether physical goods or activities that make up the final experiences. And once businesses recognize that they are staging experiences and not delivering services, they can gain much more economic value by leveraging on the time and attention of their guests. So before we jump into this conversation with Joe Pine, we wanted to remind you that we're launching our new white paper this week on the new foundations of platform ecosystem thinking. This will happen on November 20th. To sign up to get our release news, go to www.platformdesigntoolkit.com and click on the tab Thinking to find the new white paper page where you can sign up. Now, let's go with the episode with Joe Pine. Hello, everyone. It's Simone here uh, for this new uh, episode of the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. And today I am with my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, everyone. Good to be here. And uh, with us, we have uh, no less than a legend such as Joe Pine. Good uh, evening, Joe, or is afternoon on your side, I think. It's morning on my side. It's afternoon on yours, but it's a pleasure to be with uh, you, Simona, and also uh, Stina. Right. I think uh, after a full day of uh, workshops, sometimes we lost the, we lose <laughs> the, the time. So thanks, thanks very much again, Joe. And it's a pleasure and an honor for us to have you here. So first of all, I would like to ask you, you know, maybe a question that uh, many have been asking you. Why, after so many years, you are re-editing the Experience Economy book? So what has changed? What are the new key aspects that designers and managers and, and, and business people need to catch up with after a while? Well, well, what has not changed, Simone, is that is, is this shift into the experience economy. You know, uh, Jim Gilmore and I didn't identify a fad, but a fundamental change in the very fabric of the economy. And that has proven out over the last 20 plus years. And so we felt it important to be able to, to talk a little bit about what's, what are the latest things we've discovered. You know, we actually updated it in 2011 from the original book in 1999, but then in the, in the nine years since then, you know, the basic thing that we've seen is that, that companies now compete against the world, right? The, the, you don't compete against your normal competitors in your industry or in your geographic area. Every company basically competes against the world with every other company for the time, attention, and money of individual customers. And so that's why we, we you know, subtitled the, the new re-release of the book as competing for customer time, attention, money, because time really is the currency of experiences. That's something that we've realized. We now talk about experiences as time well spent. 
know, services are time well saved, but experiences are time well spent, that people actually value the time that they spend with you. And what you're, what you're really doing is that you are designing the time that, the, that they spend with you. That's what experience design is all about, as, as famed uh, experience architect John Jurdy once, once wrote. And uh, so it is about managing that time, providing value of time, not just about you know, the activities you perform with the service or the things that you provide with, with, with a good or even the, the natural stuff of, of commodities. So, so one's about time. And then secondly, attention, recognize that the, the greatest, the number one competitor for attention of any company in the world is the smartphone, you know, where companies can, people can instantly drop out of your experience and be doing something else with their phones. So you've got to grab their attention. You've got to capture that attention and get them to spend time with you. And we talk in there about five core elements of experiences that they can be used to, to capture people's attention. And that is that you need experiences that are robust, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and even transformative. And the whole rest of the book really is the frameworks and the ideas and the principles that allow you to be able to capture uh, people's attention with, uh, again, experiences that are robust, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and even transformative. And then lastly, money. You know, the, the, no company should think of its purpose as, as making money, but money is the measure of how well you fulfill your purpose, including how well you, you provide that time well spent. And so one of the key things we talked about from the very beginning, some people laughed at this you know, over 20 years ago when we started talking about the importance of charging admission for the experience. And still many companies give away the, the experience in order to better sell what they have today. You know, that's what cafes like Starbucks do. They're still charging for the coffee making uh, service, but they're providing and offering a, a, a coffee drinking experience. But increasingly, what you see is more and more companies across many industries are charging admission for the experience because fundamentally you are what you charge for. You know, if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But you're in the experience business economically if and only if you charge for the time your customers spend with you, right? That's that time well spent aspect. And so, so you need to, need to go beyond, you know, the goods and services economically to charge for time through an admission fee, a membership fee, a per play fee, or other ways of, of being able to do that. And we also introduced in the new book a, a, a new measure, which is the money value of time, which is recognizing that, that you know, we all know about the time value of money, but the money value of time is the expenditure per minute that customers are paying you. And, and it's a measure that you can then use to compare across industries, across geographic areas, across all, all companies to be able to understand how engaging the experience are you really, provide, really providing. How engaging do your customers find your experience is based fundamentally on how much they're willing to spend for the time that they are with you. That's a really interesting take and really relevant updates, I think, to the, to the initial framing that was offered in, in the book. And since you lately also participated to the MIT Platform Summit, I know that you have been leading a panel, if, if I'm not wrong. You said also that platforms are, have always been for example, trading uh, uh, commodities or also services. You know, maybe we are pretty much used to this idea of uh, platforms as marketplaces where producers and consumers meet each other and exchange services and products. Maybe we are less used uh, still uh, to an idea of an, an experience platform. So a platform where essentially people share experience between each other. So I'm really curious of your insights on this transition from brands customers relating on an experience and more into this world of new brands that are more platforms that enable the sharing of an experience between peers. What are your uh, insights on, on this transition? Yeah, well, you know, it is, it is interesting to know that commodities have always been sold in platforms almost exclusively, you know, unless there's some long-term contract, you know, commodities are exclusively sold in platforms. I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go to the flower commodity show or place in, in, in the Netherlands and see how commodities are really traded with flowers. It was sort of just, just fascinating to see how that was going, going on. Goods are mostly exchanged in platforms. And, and here you need to think about physical platforms, not just digital platforms, right? With the rise of digital technology, we can amp platforms up just tremendously. 
But a retail store is a platform. You know, a retail store is where distributors bring in goods from many different places to one single place, and then customers come from all different places to that one single place, and then they exchange money for goods, right? That's a physical platform, uh, just like the original Agora in, in ancient Greek times. And services were, were, however, mostly done via point-to-point, right? That, that you, you specifically went to a service and and the same, and and then bought that service, like having your hair cut or cleaning your clothes. And the same with experiences. You know, generally they were there's an experience provider, and there and then there are various consumers that come and buy from that. That's the way it's always been. But now, with the rise of digital technology, with the capability to create these sorts of platforms, we have seen this shift. You know, first in services, but now especially and strongly in experiences of going from that point to point a customer company model to a you know to a multi-user double-sided platform model and you know probably where you first saw it is that there were sort of in every country there were local companies that recognized the value of experiences and created ways to consolidate all the providers together so people could buy them particularly initially as gifts you know like birthday gifts or christmas gifts or or things like that but then also they discovered that a lot of them are doing it for themselves for their family and I'm thinking particularly of like Red Balloon in Australia and uh, My Days in Germany and, and others like If Only in the U.S., which is a very high end one. But, you know, those sorts of platforms have been there for, for 10 or 15 years. And, and probably the one that really, really made a difference and showed the way, though, is Airbnb. You know, Airbnb originally very much of a service platform in the sense of, you know, getting uh, renting a spot on somebody's couch, you know, is generally not that great an experience, but it does provide the functionality that you need to be able to go to a city that you're there for other reasons, you know, not for the hospitality experience. But over time, it became much, much more, more of a hospitality experience. In fact, they, they hired Chip Conley, a, a friend of mine who who actually won our third ever Experience Stager of the Year Award back in uh, 2000, I think it was, and uh, 2001, one of the two. And uh, they hired him as chief hospitality officer. He's a wonderful hotelier. He created Joie de Vivre Hospitality, and you know, hospitality is in his bones. And so they hired him to teach the one side of the platform, right, the providers, to be able to be hospitable, right, because to, for guests. And that's one of the things where you know it's an experience where you stop talking about customer users, particular customers, even clients, you start using the word guest. And one of the things about guest is guest always implies a host. In fact, they have the same root in, in, in a Germanic root. They're literally two sides of the same coin. They're the same word that have been translated twice into English. One is once is host and once is guest. And uh, so you have to teach hosts to be hospital. And that's when it started becoming more experiential than service oriented that people weren't looking just for a place to stay. And so they do all these other stuff in, the, in, in, in a city uh, or a locale, but instead look for that hospitality experience that they actually enjoyed the time that they spend you know, in the place. Well, then, of course, they, they started adding the trip function. And now where you can, you can rent not just the place to stay, but you can then now be able to access these various different experiences that were out there. So you can be, to have an itinerary where Airbnb took more and more of, of the piece of the pie of that, of that trip itinerary that you have by connecting you in particular to local experiences, right? That was its forte. You know, it's easier to find the big things, all the big touristy things, but to be able to like go bar hopping with a local, right? You couldn't do that normally. Where were you going to find that sort of person? It took an ex- the experience platform to be able to do that. And then, of course, when COVID hit, they moved more towards online experiences and became an online experience platform where people, you know, usually generally uh, individual people versus versus companies would offer themselves online, you know, to teach you how to juggle or to show you magic tricks or to take you on an experience through a city that you couldn't visit yourself, but let's do it with my smartphone. I'll take you around. I'll be your virtual uh, tour guide. So all of those really shifted it towards providing almost a a full function experience platform from its roots in, in, in as a basic service platform. And so we see, and, and particularly the, the, the fact that we all have been locked down has, has seen the rise of many others that are able to do that, that show people you know, how they can gain access to that, including you know, side door and first tube media 
that were part of that MIT uh, Platform Strategy Institute uh, panel discussion we had on experience platforms back in July. It's, uh, it's really interesting that you brought up this uh, Airbnb example. Indeed, I recall once to you know listening to somebody at Airbnb. I, I don't recall if it was Joe Gabia or or saying that essentially the the organization really completely transformed itself in terms of culture and maybe also practices when they realized that they weren't selling rooms, but that they were selling experiences. One question that I have, Joe, still with regards to this idea of platforms and experiences, you once said, or at least I've seen you being quoted, so hopefully that's true, that staging these experiences is a fundamental dimension of how a company competes. This also means that the organization needs to organize internally in terms of structures, for example, in a way that is able to stage such experiences and to create such experiences for their customers. So, so the question will be, uh, what are the organizational artifacts and practices that you see emerging to be able for organization to really be able to stage these experiences? And maybe if you can double-click on... Uh, what does it mean for platforms that, to some extent, manifest themselves on the market, not through an employee or through a process that is entirely under control of the organization, but through providers or third parties that embody their brand promise and, and brand experience without being part of the organization? So how do you change an organization, both from the point of view of culture, skills, and structures, to be able to do this and to invent these uh, first, first of all, a very good question. And, and there are a lot of things that are that are wrapped up in there. And one is is you obviously have to you have to turn from being product centric to customer centric, from focused on what you're doing to what your customers are experiencing. And again, with experiences, that really means guest centric. And so, and, and, and to, to change culture that one of the first things you've got to start changing is you've got to start changing the vocabulary, right? And, and then we change vocabulary, then you can change behavior and then you can change uh, 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 culture. And so it is a matter of understanding that our customers are guests, that we are staging experiences, not just delivering services. And so I, I hate, I hate the term like, like delivering experiences. No, no, no. Deliver is a service word, staging. If you want to use choreographing or orchestrating, that's okay as well. But it's but the economic function that you're doing, you need to understand is one of staging. It's designing the elements that come together to create experiences. You need to understand that experiences happen inside of people. Your commodities, goods, services exist outside of us. But experiences happen inside of us. So you need to reach inside of people and engage them in an inherently personal way to create that memory, which is the hallmark of the, of the experiences. Of, of the experience. And not all companies have to do this, but one great route to staging experiences is by is by customizing your goods and services. You know, and 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 mass customizing them allows you to do so efficiently because mass customizing a good automatically turns it into service and mass customizing a service turns it into an experience. So developing those capabilities are important. And that's of course one of the things that as you think about shifting to platforms that you do is that platforms have to are inherently Customize, you know, that, that you have an individual customer coming to that platform with their individual needs, picking out an individual experience that they want to have. And so you, you necessarily need to, to customize it uh, for them. And, and as, as I mentioned, you know, as Airbnb Green being a great example is with hiring Chip Conley as chief hospitality officer is that what, what all platforms will eventually find out is that you can't just leave it up to the, to the providers, to the experienced stagers that are on your platform to create a great experience. Eventually, you're going to have to realize you have to help them out. You have to ensure that they take a great experience or that they stage a great experience. And you have to train them and teach them how to do so. And, and, and one of the things that virtually no one does, so like I can give you an example of a, of a company that has an experience platform that thus far is internal to itself, that shows you the way of how to do this, but, but no one has really created a, 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 a platform where they understand their individual guests, their individual customers so well that they have a profile, profile of them, 
that where they can fulfill their preferences across different providers on the you know on the, on the provider side. In other words, that that I have one shared view of who that end guest is. Most platforms today don't share information about the guests, you know, beyond their name and credit card numbers and that sort of thing. That that everybody starts from a blank slate of not knowing who this person is, and therefore they can't provide a very well customized experience. We need to be able to get to that point where we are, in fact, understanding that every guest has a profile and we can share that profile. And, and each then provider, each experienced individual experience teacher can learn about that guest and contribute to that profile. So the next time we interact with them, we know even more about them. You know, that, that cultivates what, what, what uh, Don Pepper's Martha Rogers and I originally called in the Harvard Business Review a, a learning relationship a relationship that grows and deepens over time that, that enables you to realize that every interaction you have with a customer is an opportunity to learn from that customer. And the more you learn from that customer, the better you customize to them. The better you customize to them, the more they're going to benefit. And the more they benefit, the more they're willing to interact with you. And every interaction is an opportunity to learn, right? That's how you form a very tight customer-centric, guest-centric, learning relationship around each individual customers and platforms need to get to that level of doing that. It's very interesting to see how you are pointing to information asymmetries here. So you are pointing to say, you know, platforms and their providers, platforms need to develop a different relationship with their providers in a way that, that the information is more uh, transparent to some extent, the information, for example, about the other party involved. So to some extent, uh, you are hinting towards developing the need to develop a different social compact, let's say, between platform owners and platform providers. If we really want to be able to deliver that kind of deep personal and transformative experiences that, that you talk about. I know you, I, spoke, I said the deliver, which is not the way you should uh, <laughs> refer to an experience, but I guess you understand what I mean. So can you maybe just expand a little bit on what you feel like, because this is also resonates with the idea of organizational development in terms of shared governance, shared access to information. What do you uh, feel like in terms of the direction this new kind of relationship between platforms and providers can bring these discords to really be able to stage these transformative experiences. Yeah, it's interesting too, Simona, that you use the word transparent in describing this. And another Harvard Business Review, Review article that uh, my partner Jim Gilmore and, and I wrote, we talked about four different types of customization and one we named transparent. And that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about here. Transparent customization is where you don't necessarily tell customers that you're, that you're, customizing for them. It may look like it's standard, but you see through that, that transparency there, you see through that to find the customized value. And when you have a profile of customers on a platform basis and they share it, well, you haven't interacted with them before. So that, you know the, the way to do it is to transparently customize based on what they know about you, make further observations, contribute to that, that profile, and then, and then send it back so that the overall platform becomes smarter at uh, understanding individual uh, customers, so it is the right way to go. So, you know, one way to, to 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 recognize what I think you're getting at is let me talk about the example that that I alluded to of an individual company that's doing this with an experienced platform, and that is Carnival Corporation. And Carnival Corporation is a, is a cruise company. They have I think nine different cruise company brands, including the Princess brand, where they started this. And obviously, right now, during the midst of the corona crisis, you know, there, there, are only a, there are a few cruises that have started up, I've noticed. But basically, it's an industry that's almost dead in the water, if you pardon the phrase. And, but, you know, it will come back and, and, and Carnival is best positioned to exceed because, you know, most companies in the cruise industry compete on providing the, the, the next generation of the biggest ship. It's this, 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 it's this shift towards big, big, big. And, and, and betting billions of dollars on every ship and so forth. And instead, what they, what they wanted, they wanted to create an experience that was viable on any ship, even ships that are 40, 50 years old and, and, and much smaller than what you're used to. And to do that, it's about understanding the individual guest. So they created an IoT device called the Ocean Medallion. And the Ocean Medallion is something that every guest can carry with them to identify who they are. You know, they have sensors throughout the ship that can track every medallion, therefore know who customers are. And of course, then they keep a profile of that individual customer. 
it starts before they even get on the cruise ship where they, you know, they, they, they book their cruise and then Carnival asks them to upload an image of their passport so they know that they're, that they're ocean ready, they call it, so that they have a valid passport six months after the date of the cruise. And then, and then they ask them for preferences about what they'd like to do on their, their cruise. And so they begin creating a customized itinerary for each person that they can show on the, the Ocean Compass app that they have. And as they, they work to get on the cruise, one of the worst parts of getting on a cruise is always getting on the cruise where you have to, you go in these dirty, dusty, dingy buildings that are like, you know, very hot and that until you, you, you work very slowly showing your passport multiple times. And they completely redesigned that entering experience to be in, in, in light, airy, cool buildings that are themed properly for the ocean medallion. You never have to show your passport when you, when you get up and walk at a normal place up to the, the plank onto the ship. Every Carnival Cruise member has a tablet. And when your medallion gets within range of that tablet, it pops up an image of you, right? Your picture from your passport, as well as your name. And so that they can welcome you by name on board. As you, as you walk down the, 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 the ship, it's, again, tracking the medallion. So when you get to your room, it knows that it's you. When you touch the door, you close the electric circuit, and it unlocks for you and greets you by name digitally there in the room. You can pay for everything with that. You don't have to carry around keys or wallets or coins or, or anything. And then they, they then with that personal experience itinerary, they begin to, to observe what it is that you do. And if you, for example, tend to spend more time in a particular experience than average, they think that, well, that probably means it's time well spent for you and you value that more. If you spend less time than average, then you probably didn't enjoy that as much. So they make personal experience invitations to tailor your experience during that cruise, which then gets smarter the next cruise and the next cruise after that, as they go through that learning relationship. They can even remember things like when you're on the pool deck with your kids, your favorite drink is an iced tea with no lemon, but when you're in the bar with your buddies, it's a mojito. And when you're in the restaurant with your spouse, it's a glass of Shiraz, right? Not just the same customer, but the context of that customer, the market within that customer. And so that is just a tremendous way of creating competitive advantage, all based off of what we learn about this individual customer. And you can imagine them expanding that beyond uh, the ship to shore excursions to begin to get other companies involved to then create it as a, as a, as a platform than others. And that's certainly what many experienced platforms should be doing. It's exactly what I'm talking about, where we can learn from every customer and customize to that customer. I think that this links very much to the question that Simone hinted that I had, because I read recently that you wrote something about the employee experience. So it would be interesting to hear what, you know, because it seems like there's a lot of learning going on here, obviously helped by technology. But of course, the people who are staging the experience, they would need to master a new set of skills, it sounds like to me. And what would motivate them to, you know, be these kind of geniuses that will stage these experiences from your point of view? Well, it's interesting, you know, a subject you might want to get into is what I call genius platforms, but which is what Carnival exemplifies. It's crucial to give your employees the wherewithal to create a great experience. And if you don't do that with a an engaging employee experience, then you're not going to be able to create as great a an experience for your guests as as you want. So all the all the ideas, all the principles, all the frameworks we talk about in the experience economy do in fact apply to employees. And which is what I wrote about in, in, in that recent article, the point of view paper from a right point on the employee experience. And one of, and one of, so I talked earlier about making experiences that are robust, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and even transformative. And all that applies to employees. The, the, let me focus on one of those, I think is a good learning point as well. And, and also opens up a lot more opportunity for companies in the platform business to think about what business they're really in. And that is the transformative part. The transformative part, which we've always talked about from the beginning of the experience economy, is to recognize that experiences can be commoditized as well, just like goods and services. And so, and so you will need to go beyond experiences. You will need to differentiate yourself when they do. You think of the theme restaurant as really the first commoditized experience industry. And, and then using that same heuristic where customization is the antidote to commoditization, when you customize an experience, when you design an experience that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the experience that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but turn to what we often call a life transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way, right? That is transformative. 
And that leads to a fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value that we call transformation, right? Transformation is where you're using experiences, uh, a set of experiences to, to guide people to change in some way, in particular to achieve their aspirations, right? Healthcare is about transformation. Fitness centers are about transformation. Management consulting is B2B transformation. Coaches of all stripes are about transformation. We see tons of transformation industries. And, and, and so in terms of the employee experience, though, and that's, a, that's a core thing, that, that you need to provide them with those experiences that transform them into not just better employees, but to better people, to better skills, to have better capabilities, even if they leave and go someplace else that that's part of the bargain that you have with them, that you work for us, then, then we're not just going to live there and suck all your, your, your skills and your brains out of you. We're going to help invest in, your, in, in you as an employee and give you the wherewithal it takes to do this. And that, that goes to another aspect I talked about. Services is time well saved. Experiences is time well spent. Well, transformations are time well invested that people are actually investing their time beyond the ephemeral experience, the memory that that's created. They're investing their time in a way that pays compound interest so that they get dividends now and into the future. And that's true for employees. That can be true for customers as well. And there's a whole new, there's a, there's a whole big opportunity out there for experienced platforms to recognize, well, if I create the right set of experiences, if I string them together in the right way, if I understand what my customer in fact, in fact aspires to become, then I can go beyond the experience business and start creating a transformation platform. I'll give you one example that is related directly to the employee experience, and that's a, a company out of the Oakland, California area called BetterUp. And BetterUp is a coaching platform. They work with companies, particularly when they're undergoing some sort of transformation, to be able to provide coaching to their executives and their managers. And they do it with an app that allows people to go in and look, you know, to talk about what their aspirations are, talk about what they're trying to do coaching. Maybe their management gives them things that they're, that they're looking for them to change. And then they, they recommend, here's a set of coaches that, that meet your needs, but then there may be particular reasons why you prefer one coach over another. And so you select among those and select those coach, and then it connects the coach with the aspirant, right, with the person who wants to transform. And then they go through the set of coaching that's, that's guided by BetterUp's agreements with, with the company. So that, in fact, is, I mean, obviously you have a coaching experiences every time you interact with them, but it is a transformation platform, not just a, a, an experience platform. Just as a small clarifying question. So obviously this, you're talking about employees, but if you think about a platform, you could also think in terms of you obviously need to pay attention to the suppliers on your platform, then they would also need to be equipped to provide the best experience. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, my colleague, uh, Kim Korn, who I'm working with on ideas that, that, that he's developed around how companies can thrive forever and not fall into mediocrity, eventually fail. He, he calls it regenerative managing. And it's a great, great set of ideas. And one of the things that one of the words he, he gave me that's now part of my vocabulary is to think not just about employees or even what you might call stakeholders in that, but think about contributors. It's contributors. Who are the contributors to your, to your offering? And obviously on a platform, all the set of people that provide the offerings for the end customers are contributors. And you're absolutely right. You need to invest in them. And again, that's, again I'll go back to, to Chief Hospitality Officer Chip Conley at Airbnb. They invested in their experienced stagers on that side of the platform to make them more hospitable, to provide a better experience, to give them the wherewithal to be able to do that. And so you're, you're exactly right, Stina, is that you need to invest not just in your employees, but in all contributors to the, to the enterprise, including your suppliers and including the, the uh, platform providers or the offering providers on your platform. Very interesting from the perspective of uh, one platform, uh, platform designers, so this idea of, of recasting, I would say, the experience economy into the decided structure of platform businesses. 
So, so one, one further question that I think came to my mind when you were speaking about this idea of transformative experiences, you know, and this idea that people are always uh, seeking for this personal fulfillment. And so, so the, we know that there is this relationship between what we desire and what we create from the technological standpoint. You know? So we know that from Marsha McLuhan, but even before, you know, that uh, we, we design our tools and our tools um, uh, shape us. You know? so, so my question for you would be, if you have spent some time thinking about uh, and trying to uh, ponder this kind of inflection point that we seem to be uh, living now. So because, for example, the pandemic surely is, you know, a brute interruption of, you know, our customs, I would say, our usual way to do things. But uh, I think uh, most of all, it's a kind of harbinger of the times to come because, uh, you know, between climate change and, uh, you know, social disruptions, uh, we kind of feel like that the world we are going to uh, live in the next decade is going to be a kind of a bumpy road. So the question is, uh, how do we, and if, if it's possible, if it's feasible or useful in your point of view, how do we kind of interrupt from the experience as what we consume or what we live through and all the rest that makes this experience possible in terms of impacts on you know uh, environment the workers especially if we speak about platforms so maybe we have these uh, brand experiences that are uh, cutting edge and are very much fulfilling, but uh, they come at the expense of a lot of stuff that gets hidden in the background, you know, for example, with the debate on gig economy workers. Are we living through this inflection point? Are things changing? Can things change from this uh, perspective? Well, there's certainly something going on (laughs) if it's not an inflection point. And you know, I, I you know, I am a big believer that that the pandemic, first of all, is not the end of the experience economy. There have been a few articles on that. First of all, the ex- experiences are so much a part of the economy that that without the recovery of experiences, there can be no recovery of the economy. The economy will never go back to as as it was before without the experiences that that people value, without them coming back. Certainly. Many businesses will not make it through the pandemic. Others will continue to grow. Right now, of course, it's the digital experiences and digital platforms that are growing over the over the physical. But 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 experiences will come back. And, and in fact, one of the things the pandemic is doing, and this could be part of that inflection point, is that it, people recognize that we, you know, in, at least in the first world, we, we you know we don't need more stuff. We sort of got enough stuff. And and it's not stuff that makes us happy. It's not stuff that 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 gives our lives meaning. It's the experiences that we have that make us happy, as research shows. It's the experiences that we have with our loved ones, with our friends, even with our colleagues that gives life meaning. And and therefore we understand that more. And it causes, I think, once as as it becomes opportune, once we get a vaccine, we get close to herd immunity in that, you know, that 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 we will continue this shift from goods and services into experiences because, because of that fact that, that people recognize it, it gives life meaning. Then there's also the, the fact of, okay, what, what is the effect of what we do as consumers on the world, which I think you're getting at as well, and issues of, of sustainability in that. And, and another word that Kim Korn came up with in looking at regenerative managing is, you know, in addition to contributors, beneficiary. And recognize that there that 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 often for an offering there's a beneficiary who's not the actual customer, right? I mean, the customer is very simple. Dictionary definition of customer is the one who pays you money. And often people pay you money, but it's actually to benefit somebody else, whether it's parents to pay for a kid's schooling or or healthcare or or coaching or whatever, whether it's insurance companies that are paying for healthcare or fixing a car or whatever. You know, the beneficiary is not the same as as the, the customer. And so we can think about also then beneficiaries in terms of citizens of our state, in terms of the environment in our place, in terms of the greater good of people out there that that we can affect as well. You know, so, for example, there is another experience platform out there is or actually transformation platform is the Transformational Travel Council that is putting together and bringing together sets of businesses that are all about transforming, whether it's transforming yourself, 
because when we travel is when when we get out of our normal daily routines is when we are most open to change, but also to transform the world around us as a beneficiary of what we're doing in in that travel. You know, both of those things are possible there because they are, you know, it can be the beneficiaries of, of what we're doing. So I think that there's just so much going on that that very much could be a, a, a shift again. And, and where that inflection point is, that really makes a difference between the old goods and services and new experiences and transformations. As individuals, we only ever change through the experiences that we have. As the saying goes, we're all the product of our experiences. That's only how we ever change is, is through experiences. So you need to design, if you want to create some level of systemic change, you need whether that's inside of a company or, or among customers or among the greater world, then you've got to create the set of experiences that change people to affect the change that you want to have happen. I like this turn of thinking that the, the things can actually change through experiences. And of course, now that we have been pushed so much to our homes and to our virtual environment, how do you see that frontier of you know virtual reality and 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 you know immersive experiences online in in this whole you know coming or the economy economy continuing uh, to live its life in this uh, world of the pandemic? Well, you know, I, I wrote a book about this too. <laughs> called uh, Infinite Possibility, Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier. And in it is a, the core in it is a model that talks about how you confuse the real and the virtual. But, you know, I make clear that reality will now and forevermore provide the richest of experiences, right? You, you know, reality comes automatically in 3D, engaging all five senses, you know, without having to add any technology to it. But what virtuality does is it, is it enables experiences that are simply impossible in reality. And that's true whether whether I'm sitting at you know at a desk or on the couch with my tablet, and I'm but I'm, I'm being the experience I'm having is being mediated by a screen in some way. So yeah, I think that you'll you'll have a a lot of innovation in that. I mean, and I think that of course the the leaders in any sort of home based experience is video games, and then all the players that are out there to enhance your experience of the video games. You know, including that you have exactly the right chair that allows you to move in 360 degrees and tilt back, and and where you get the the the, the haptics almost of the of, of feeling of what's going on, as well as the multiple screens that you have, the audio and so forth, and of course the the headsets and that. But also you see innovations, and, and which and I would call this another experience platform is uh, Twitch. You know, where, where, you know, who would have guessed, you know, 20 years ago that people would love to sit around and watch people play video games. <laughs> but in fact, it's a very engaging experience. But one of the things that makes it most engaging is it isn't just watching. It isn't just a passive experience. In fact, it's a very active experience because of your, your socializing with other people, commenting on what's going on, even making uh, contributions to what the video game players are, are doing and so forth and spurring them on. And it's that whole social media aspect amplified on top of the core virtual experience of the video game that makes it so, so engaging. So I think that there are things that we can learn uh, from that and how we design experiences that we do deliver to people in their homes during this pandemic. Even something as simple as, you know, a, a jewel a, or, or ideal, excuse me, a jewelry store in China. When the pandemic first hit there in January and they started to go into lockdown, they took their retail store sales associate and they put them on WeChat and they started using it as a broadcast channel to people who had bought from uh, Ideal before. And then basically their retail store turned into a virtual showroom, broadcast out into the homes of, of, of all these clients. And then when somebody wanted to be able to actually buy a piece or talk more or to learn about it, to buy it, then they would drop down into that individual chat and be able to, to, to talk to them. Right? Those are the sort of innovations that we see going on. I do believe that, that on the long term, it is always that, that, the, 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 a big part of the future anyway, again, reality will always provide the best experiences of things you can do, but, but there's a huge opportunity infusing the real and the virtual in creating purpose-built places for virtuality, for virtual reality, you know, like the void does, where where they create a place 
where the physical things that you that you have in the place match exactly what you're experiencing through your goggles. You can't see the physical environment because because they've taken over your entire senses with the virtual reality. But when you but walls are when you see walls, there's a wall you can touch. When you go upstairs, there's a there's a stairs you can touch. When you reach for a door, there's a door that you that you turn and open. And when you open it, you feel the 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 cold of the outside, for example, come in. When there's a torch that you can pick up in the game, there's an actual torch you pick up with heating elements at the end of it to tell you that, hey, this thing is hot. Uh, and I think that those sorts of experiences are sort of going to be the frontier of where we're of where we're heading to for those who desire that virtual reality experience. Because the home is not a great place for virtual reality because you tend to fall over the furniture and put your foot through the TVs and things like that. You know, it's better to have an outside environment. <laughs> Joe, as a closing question, I would like to ask you to project uh, ourselves into the future a little bit, if possible, and trying to give us your most important ideas about how these massively important trends that you have been spotting regularly in the last one or two decades, the, 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 the topic of experiences, the topic of mass customization, how are these things going to impact the very shape of the organization? Because we are really interested in also in exploring how our organizational models will adapt to the future, and especially when we talk about scalable organizations. So I would say incumbents or, or ecosystems and platforms. What do you see in terms of massive innovations in how we organize around modular uh, infrastructures and, and the experience economy? Yes, Simone, that was the exact word I was going to use. It's, it's modular, right? That's where it's, we're headed. It's modular. Modularity is the key principle of mass customization. Modularity is what enables you to efficiently serve customers uniquely, to give every customer exactly what they want, but do it with high volumes, with low cost, with efficient operations. That you modularize either, either, either physical components to create a physical good, you modularize activities to create a, an intangible service, or you modularize events to create a memorable uh, experience. And one of the things in my original book on mass customization, which going way back, you know, came out in 1993, and I had, I had a chart in there that most of it not original to me, but on six different types of modularity, of which the most robust in there is, is what's called sectional modularity, which is like Lego building bricks. You know, so I've for decades, I've asked, what can you build with Lego building bricks? You know, and everybody goes anything, right? Anything you want, because of a large number of modules of different sizes, different shapes and different colors. And again, so that module, that brick can be a physical component. It can be a human activity or a computer activity. It can be a, a physical experience or a virtual experience. It can be a experience that humans deliver as well as part of that. They can all be part of those, those Lego building bricks. But one of the things I've only realized in the last couple of years is that there's an even more powerful form of modularity, and that's digital modularity. The zeros and ones are digital modules, that bits and bytes are modules that you can bring together to create, you know, again, as my, as that last book talked about, infinite possibility that you can do anything that you want with digital technology and enables, uh, and that's what enables us to connect all these things together to create these wonderful platforms that will make a huge, huge uh, difference going forward. And it does point to how the organization is, is performed. You know, like I mentioned, you know, Carnival is, is it, its platform ocean medallion is inside of the company now. You can see how they could take it out if they chose to, but it's inside of the company. But it, but it, it sort of recognizes all the modules that people do, and you'll, so you'll start to see organizations that are more module to match the modularity of what they can do. It's, you know, it's one of the things we need to study. And you, know, you mentioned earlier the 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 talk I gave or the panel discussion at the MIT Platform Strategy Institute. And I'm working with them now to create a multi-client study on experience platforms, which will include, of course, that, that core concept of customization. And uh, one of the things we need to look at is what does it mean for organizations as you're describing? You know, what does that digital modularity mean for how we create uh, experience platforms that deliver the value that customers are looking for today? So I feel like uh, we're talking about unbundling our organizations and let them rebundle 
uh, around experiences. You know, last week uh, we had a chat with Sanjit Chudari and uh, he was talking about this idea of the economy as a process now of rebundling around the jobs to be done. From the conversation that I'm having with you, I kind of take this idea of uh, rebounding around experiences, which is even more powerful to, to think about instead of jobs to be done. So really, thank you, Joe, for, for, this, for these reflections. Anything else that you want to add before we, we close our conversation, Joe? Maybe something that is really important that our listeners need to think about uh, in terms of the impact of their professions or, or the companies or, or organizations. Well, it's sort of a summary of what we talked about. But what I would encourage you to think about is what business are you really in and recognize the opportunities that comes from from recognizing that you're in, uh, if you're in the experience and transformation business versus merely the, the service business, you're, you're, you have different requirements, you have different organization, you do things differently as a result than if you think of yourself as a service business and, and therefore you will, you'll be able to, to gain much more economic value. And one of the key aspects of that then is recognizing you are what you charge for, as I talked about earlier. And so if you're in the experience business, you need to charge for the time your customers spend with you. And not just in the individual platform modules, but think about membership offerings where they're, where they're a member of the platform and that enables them to have access to greater and greater levels of, of experience. And then when it comes to transformations, what you need to charge for is the demonstrated outcome that your customer achieves. That with transformations, the 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 customer is the product. Uh, that's what you're happening is you're changing the customer, or actually you're enabling them to change themselves is what's really happening. And so the customer is the product, and therefore inputs don't matter, right? What 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 you do, the activities that you do, the experiences they have don't matter. It's only whether they achieve their aspiration or not, or to what level they achieve their aspiration. And, and so that is, is charging for the demonstrated outcomes. And we see that happening more and more, and that will become more popular as people recognize transformations for the distinct economic offering that they are. And that would be surely a very selective impact on businesses, you know, because those that will be able to demonstrate their impact will retrieve the others most likely will disappear. Joe, that was a super insightful conversation. I must say that you, uh, you were really ahead of time across the whole career, your whole career. And since you are talking about modularity since so much, so, so many years, and now we're all talking about unbundling. And then we're talking, you were talking about experiences where we are still stuck into this idea of jobs to be done. So really, thank you for you know, pushing us to, to, think, to think forward, I would say. So again, thank you very much, Joe, for the time you spent with us. Thank you, Simona and Stina. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure. And thank you, Stina, for the follow-up questions. Thank you. And uh, uh, to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valtamobilia Leo Sound for the Haddock music.